This is a bittersweet time for you as a church. Uh, Your pastor, Pastor Dave Lunsford, has been here for some time. You miss him terribly. Uh, You are very proud of him, however, as he is now the executive director of Baptist Network Northwest. And so that joy of knowing that he is serving God and being a pastor to pastors blesses your heart, but at the same time, there's a void here. The one who has guided you and preached the word and has been with you through thick and thin, he's no longer in place. And so it's bittersweet. It's a difficult situation for you. I liken this interim period, this state between pastors, uh, to, well, strangely enough, to the circus. Okay? Hang in there. Think with me. How many of you have seen the flying trapeze artists? You know, you've seen them on TV or have you gone to a circus? Well, times of uncertainty are much like the experience of the flying trapeze artist. You know how an artist climbs up that tall pole and gets on top and grabs onto the security of a bar and then swings out and lets go of the bar and awaits the other support to come and then grasps it, hangs on, and then swings to the other pole where she is secure, right? But for a moment, the trapeze artist is suspended between securities. And it is there in that mid-air moment that she is caught in an act of faith. And it is there that the Christian, feeling the tug of gravity, is caught when he or she finds himself, herself, without that security, without that known place where things are stable and can be counted on. Well, that's where you are, Ferndale, First Baptist. You're suspended between securities. You're not sure uh, what is going to come. How long will it take for you to get a pastor? Will people stick with you in this interim period? Will people leave? Will there be enough funding? Will people decide to give more or give less? Who is going to take care of things? That sense of uncertainty, that sense in which you too are caught in an act of faith, you are suspended between these securities. It's one thing to believe God when everything is secure and in place. It's quite another to trust in God when you feel that tug, that pull of gravity. Am I right? That's where we are. So how do we trust God from such a place? How do we go about hanging in there when we no longer have the bar to hold on to? I would like to ask you to take out the, is that a peach colored sheet or coral? What would you call that? Salmon? That works. If you would take that and on one side we have the scripture, the other side we have a brief outline. And I want to invite you to join with me in reading in unison this psalm. This is from the New International Version, and so this psalm might have some wording that's a little different than what you're accustomed to, but just hang in there with me if you would, please. Psalm 23. Are you ready? Together. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me. 
all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thank you for reading that with me. Psalm 23 shows us how we can trust God in uncertain times. And this passage has been incredibly meaningful to me, and I'd like to share with you some thoughts from this well-known psalm. The psalm, the psalmist David, King David of Israel, uses the images of a caring shepherd and a hospitable host to describe his experience of trusting the Lord. But these peaceful images betray the possible setting of the psalm. We might think that this psalm was written about a time of relative stability or ease, when in fact it appears to have been written in a very difficult, hazardous situation in David's life. Some scholars tell us that the actual occasion for the writing of this psalm appears to have been a life-threatening situation. Either David was facing an army, an opposing army in battle, or David was looking over his shoulder at at an assassination attempt on his life. And so in either case, this is not a comfortable place to be in, is it? And it is out of this anxiety, it is out of this time of uncertainty that David writes this most beautiful hymn. And how many generations have come to this hymn for encouragement and for comfort. And so this meaningful hymn, this song, this psalm, speaks to us not out of life's times of ease and being, uh, being cared for and everything's copacetic, everything is fine, but it, rather it is written about a time in David's life in which uncertainty was high, anxiety was driving the process, he was having Uh, uh, looking at an unknown future. He didn't know whether or not he was going to live or die. And so this psalm speaks to us today, and it speaks here to First Baptist as you are caught between securities. You're uncertain. What I would like to do is to talk about two major points. And so if you leave today with anything, leave with this, and that is God is for you. God is for you. And... God is with you. When we are suspended between securities, we have the assurance that our God is with us and that our God is for us. I want to look at these verses one at a time and just try to sketch out some things that might help bring into focus those two points. First of all, in verses 1 through 3, we read about God being for us. David writes in verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Clearly, David names the Lord. The Lord. What's the big deal here? Well, the kings uh, in this ancient world, the nations that they represented, were associated with particular deities. And when you think of a nation, you often would think of the sponsoring god or goddess who would oversee the affairs of the nation and its people. And oftentimes the god would manifest himself or herself to the king or through the king to the people at large. And so here David is writing in an international setting, as it were in which he is showing a contrast between the way the Lord functions in his life as king and the way in which other deities of other nations, the way those deities function in the lives of those foreign peoples. And so David here, his thought that the Lord is my shepherd can be seen against, well, in Egypt, Ra is my shepherd. Or whatever other god or goddess there might be, Mithra, etc., in the ancient world. And so David here is saying, I am trusting in this one. I am designating this deity. I am showing you his superiority. Now, other nations in 
peoples had to placate their foreign gods or goddesses. They had to be there and be square. They had to do the very thing that the god and goddesses required in order to secure his or her favor in their lives. How do I know if the god or goddess is favorably disposed toward me? How will I know that the god or goddess is going to make it possible for us to be victorious in war? How will we know if the god or the goddess is going to take care of us if our, and provide for a good crop, a good harvest season? How will we know if the god and goddess is going to take care of the health needs of our family and countrymen? And so these questions would percolate in minds, and you would go to the temple, and there you would do the various things that the priest would require so that you could placate the god and try to earn his or her favor. You with me? You with me here? And so that's what's happening here. David is basically saying, hey, it's the Lord is my shepherd. And by the way, my God is nowhere near as capricious or as arbitrary as your God. I have this fundamental confidence that the Lord will care for me. I have this basic conviction that no matter the uncertainty of my life, I can trust in Him. The Lord is my shepherd. What a contrast that we can see in this psalm. And David then goes on and he tells of his experience of this shepherd's care of his life in verses 2 and 3. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. The details of life are cared for by this compassionate shepherd. You see, for David, this was the normal operating procedure with God. This is what walking with God looks like. This is the kind of God who is with us. This God knows what needs to be done, and this God knows when to do it. So it's an issue of achieving particular ends and doing it within particular time frames. The Lord makes me. The Lord leads me. The Lord refreshes me, David is saying. And so it's not as if he's uncertain about God's care, but rather he has a high degree of confidence. And even though he is anxious about the uncertainty of whether he will live or die, he's basically saying, the Lord's in charge here. And in my life and experience, the Lord has anticipated every need that I've ever had. And the Lord has met those needs for me. Therefore, in this moment of uncertainty, I will trust him. I will, in fact, take great pleasure that he is for me in this time and in this place. And so he is living out this posture of trust. He's living out this sense of the fact that God has accepted him and that God is working to achieve what is beneficial in his life. No wonder David says, I lack nothing. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. I have everything that I need in this life situation. He goes on in the last part of verse 3. And he says, he guides me along the right paths for what? Let me hear you. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Oh, wow. You know, the, the reputation of a shepherd is all important. All important. The shepherd has to know the, the lay of the land. The shepherd has to know where to take the sheep to get water, where to take them for good shelter against wild animals and those robbers and thieves. The good shepherd has to know uh, how to lead them along the paths to get there to the green pasture. So it's not only the destination that the shepherd has to have knowledge of, but it's how to get from here to there. And so the shepherd 
has to have all of this and have experience at guiding and leading the sheep along in order to bring them to that place where they need to be. The shepherd's reputation, can he do it? Do you have experience doing this? I mean, what's the job interview going to look like for a shepherd? Right? So this is the case. Okay, where do you go to take them to protect them? Where are you going to take them in order to eat? Where are you going to take them in order to drink? What paths will you take in order to get to those various locations? That's how you hire a shepherd. And David is saying, in essence, this shepherd, the Lord, knows where I need to go, and he knows how to get me there, safe and sound, and on time. These things happen on purpose in my life. This is the Lord, my shepherd, David is saying. And so, in essence, God's reputation could be called into question if he faltered in any way in caring for David and for Israel. God's purpose for David, king of Israel, is very important. David recognizes that. However, David says, your character and your faithfulness are primary here. And I am trusting in your covenantal relationship with Israel. I'm looking to you to do the thing and keep the terms of the agreement. I'm waiting on you, I'm looking to you, and I'm going to interpret this particular difficulty in my life in the light of this greater care and plan that you have for Israel. And even though my life may not be saved, I know your purpose will be fulfilled. Therefore, I can trust completely, fully, totally in you, knowing that you will lead me along the right paths, to the right place, at the right time, because it's on you. Therefore, I'm counting on you. I have nothing else to depend upon except the guarantee that you are going to be God for me in this situation. And so you will act to do what is ultimately beneficial for me, and you will not do that which will prove to be destructive. What great confidence we see here in David. God is for me. It jumps off the page, doesn't it? God is for me. He repeats this in creative language over and over and over. God is for me. And he goes on and he says, God is also with me. In verses 4 through 6. God is with me. It's one thing to have a close friend who's for you. It's nice to get the call every once in a while. But to have the friend come over and sit next to you and hold your hand and be with you and talk through things with you, comfort you in your time of uncertainty, that's quite a different thing, is it not? So this God is not only for us, but this God is with us. Companionship. We see care emphasized in the first three verses. We see companionship emphasized in the last three. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are what? You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Shepherds would use the staff as they walked the sheep through the dark ravines in order to get to the pastures, to get to the water. Shepherds would often have to take sheep through these shadow regions. You know, as the sun would course across the sky, it would crest over a hill, the long shadow would be cast, and in there you have the path, the path uh, draped there in this darkness. And sheep have very poor eyesight. And so it makes them highly anxious to have to walk through the shadows. And they can't see well, and so they're dependent upon other senses. Uh, hearing being the major one. And here the shepherd would take the staff. The good shepherd takes the staff. And he taps on the ground with the staff. Taps and taps. The sheep hear that familiar sound. And the sheep are reassured that the shepherd is with them. And they follow the sound. Tap, tap, tapping as they move through that dark ravine into the safety of the coming light. Tap, tap, tapping through the darkness. 
And David says, even though I can't see you, you are here. I hear you. I'm trusting you to be with me. I am attentive to the signs of your presence. And that makes me confident. That strengthens me in this time of uncertainty. I will fear no evil because you are with me. And so God's familiar presence calmed David, steadied his nerves, enabled him, strengthened him so that he could walk and he could follow. You are with me here. You are with me now. I'm not going to fear whatever may come because we are in this together. My dark circumstances are transformed by your constant presence. Your companionship in this time of uncertainty gives me a sense of stability. I can do this. I can do this. I can get through this. I can move ahead because you are with me. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. What in the world is this talking about? You ever wonder that when you read this verse? The weaker kings of the ancient world would routinely seek out alliances with the superior kings in the region, and that they they would come into some kind of an agreement. In the Middle Eastern language, it's called a suzerainty agreement. And they would go to meet, the weaker king would go to meet the superior king, and the superior king would hold a royal feast. And in essence, that royal banquet would announce to enemies in the region, he's my man, lay off. And so here we can interpret this poetic expression in the light of that greater understanding of a military agreement. In essence, David is saying, folks, give me your best shot. My back is covered. There's this sense that David has here, not only of having that stability that comes with the security of this arrangement, but rather he's talking about this abundant care of being in the presence of this superior royal figure, the superior king. Oil is poured on his head, signifying the well-being of the guests. Uh, The abundance of wine, the cup overflows and overflows and overflows. Everything is cared for. The pressure is off. Things are now at ease. There's this sense that all is well. What relief. What relief. This is what God's presence brought to David. This is what his experience of God's companionship was like for David. David had no worries. Don't worry, be happy. That's what verse 5 says. God is with you. God is caring for you. Take a load off. Right? Verse 6, the final verse. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Here we are in the final verse. David is once again in the presence of the superior king, and he says that his royal host's goodness is favorable disposition toward David. And love, endless, limitless, that this royal host, in essence, These qualities of companionship follow David all along, follow him through his entire life. This word translated follow is used in other Old Testament passages in military contexts to describe someone who pursues or chases an enemy. Now this is ironic that David is using a term in a military context to describe the royal host's goodness and love pursuing after him. In essence, he's basically saying, I'm not the object of the enemy's hatred or or this adverse situation of an assassination attempt. 
I'm the object of favor. He's completely reframed the entire situation that he's facing. And he's saying, in essence, my host is like a playful pet who's nipping at my heels. He's with me. He's caring for me. What a joyful experience I'm having in the presence of this royal host. That's the way it is being described by David. So here we see that God is for us and that God is with us. So what? What does that have to do with you as you go through this interim period? How does this connect with you as you await God's leading to provide for you a new shepherd? How does this get down to where you are? Well, I think David shows us how trust actually works in our lives. One Jewish commentator said the 23rd Psalm is an answer to the question of how do you live in a dangerous, unpredictable, and frightening world? That's Psalm 23. And I think David's images here of a shepherd that show that he is for us and of a king that shows that he's with us, that in essence, David is basically saying, I'm giving you, First Baptist, I'm giving you some glimpses into how God can be at work for you and with you in your uncertain time. And so this psalm, in essence, serves as an invitation to you to help you in this uncertain time. David does three things, and you may have picked up on it as we've walked through the passage. He does three very simple things. And these three things are the things that trust does. If you want to know what trust looks like, see it in these three things. If you want to show trust in the midst of an uncertain time, do these three things. First of all, David reframes his uncertainty in the light of the character of God. Secondly, David renames his anxiety in terms of God's companionship. And finally, David rehearses rehearses the care of God in a time of high anxiety. And I think this is what trust looks like. We have to reframe, rename, and rehearse. And so let's quickly, briefly look at each of these three, shall we? First of all, David reframes the brutal realities of his situation in terms of God's person. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. He says, he guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. And there the emphasis is on the character and the commitment of God. Looking at the uncertainty of what it's going to be like in battle, will he survive? The unknowns of when an assassin might attempt to take his life. When, where, how, always being alert, always being attentive. Instead of allowing these circumstances to offset his life, he reframes these circumstances in the light of God's character and God's commitment. In essence, God's character transformed his circumstances, transformed his outlook, the way he saw his circumstances. And this is the way David functioned. You may recall Admiral James Stockdale, a true American hero. He was a Navy pilot who was shot down over North Vietnam. He was captured, and he was taken to the infamous Hanoi Hilton Prison, where he spent many years. And there he was tortured, and he was manipulated, tried to be used in propaganda efforts, and he refused. On one occasion, he was told, you tomorrow will be filmed, and we're going to take your film and send it to the American public, and you are to denounce America, and you're supposed to talk about your fair care treatment here by us. In his room, in his cell, he had a single light bulb, he had a mat, and he had a chair, uh, uh, like a stool more like. And that night, he took that stool and beat himself in the face, cutting himself and bruising himself, making it impossible for them to use him on camera. This is the kind of person Admiral Stockdale was. He passed away a few years ago. Admiral Stockdale was asked, how did you survive when others didn't? And Stockdale said, well, that's easy to answer. He said, those who died said, we're going to be home by Christmas. And Christmas would come, 
and Christmas would go, and they would still be in prison. Well, we'll we'll be home by summer, and summer would come, and summer would go, and they are still in prison. And he said, eventually, they lost hope, and they died of a broken heart. And so when asked, well, how did you make it? He said, you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality. Have faith you're going to get through, but keep your eyes open and be realistic about what you're facing. And that's what enabled him to survive. And so he was released, as I recall, after some six or seven years in prison. And he went on to teach philosophy at the University of Stanford. What I find interesting about David is that he doesn't live in a fantasy world. He's dealing with the reality. He understands that he might not live. He recognizes the difficulty. He's taken the necessary steps in his life. He faced the brutal realities. But David also factored God into his circumstances. He saw God as being as much a fact in his life as the efforts to kill him were. And so he sees his situation then in the light of who God is and what God can do. God is for me here. It's tough. It's uncertain. But he's for me. God is with me now. I don't know how I'm going to do it. I don't know how we're going to get through it. It's complicated. It's challenging. It's difficult. But I'm trusting God to make a way. I'm looking to you, God, to be God for me. I'm looking to you, God, to be the God you say you are in the terms of your covenant with Israel. I'm looking to you, God, to do for me what you said you would do. I'm counting on you in this very uncertain situation. And so David reframed his circumstances in the light of God's character. Psalm 23 then invites us to make most of God, doesn't it? You can trust God with this uncertain time. You can reframe your situation in the light of God's character and commitment. You can look to God and trust Him to carry you through the difficulties. It is not easy to get a new pastor. It's not easy to get the right pastor. I've worked with a number of churches. My, my involvement in the last five years has been to help churches through times like this. And I know the ins and outs of how things work. When I was younger and first starting out in ministry, it was rather simple. Somebody would pick up a phone, chairman of the deacon board, chairman of the elders, pick up a phone, call a person and say, we'd like you to come and candidate. The person would come and candidate. Church liked him, great, you had a vote in two weeks. In two weeks, the candidate was given the results of the vote, and now the candidate has a week to make up his mind. And within a few months, a new pastor would be in the pulpit. Everything moves on. It's like a hiccup. It's not unusual anymore to go two or three years without a pastor in an interim period. It's not that there aren't available men. You can get up to 150 applications once you make it known, this is our qualifications, this is what we want. You can get up to 150. How do you know which one you want? How do you know which one's going to fit the church? How do you know what's right for the church? What is right for the church? Where's the church going to go in the next five to ten years? How do we get there? What kind of qualities are we going to need in order to get there? What kind of characteristics do we look for in a candidate in order to give us the confidence that he, in fact, has those qualities to lead us along? And on and on and on it goes. And, of course, with three or four Baptists, you have eight or ten opinions, right? And so before long... You have this abundance. You had 150 people wanting to be your pastor and you can't make up your mind. I'm just being real. These are brutal realities today. Okay? This is the way it is. Now that doesn't mean your elders or your deacons 
don't have their head screwed on right. It means that this is an inherently challenging process. You have to do some thinking. You have to anticipate some issues. What percentage of your congregation is over 65? What percentage of your congregation is under 40? How long do you wish to be a church? What percentage of people do you wish to have in the under 40s? How are you going to reach the under 40s? They don't look like you. They don't think like you. They don't sing like you. They don't talk like you. They don't act like you. Are you going to be willing to change in order to reach out to bring these people into your church to become part of First Baptist? They are not necessarily going to walk through the door and say, oh, gee, I can't wait to become just like you. What I have found in working with churches, and I'm just being straight with you. Do you mind if I'm straight with you? Do you mind if I'm honest? In working with churches, they are more concerned with protecting who they are than they are reaching people under 40. They are more concerned about losing who they are than they are connecting with and bringing into the body people under 40. You have quite a history here, and I'm not critical of you at all. I'm only encouraging of you. I praise you for your witness here for so many years. 1887 was the beginning of the church, am I correct? Did I hear that correctly? You have been here quite a time. How much longer do you want to be in existence? What steps are you willing to take in order to ensure that you fulfill God's mission here? What are you prepared to do? These are the brutal realities of the interim period. It's not a cakewalk, folks. It's very difficult. It's very challenging. But you can do it. You can make your way through this dark ravine. You can get back into the light. You can move through it and come to that new place, that green pasture, that quiet water. The Lord will refresh First Baptist Church. Follow Him. Reframe your situation in the light of what God is doing. A second thing that David did was to rename his life-threatening situation. He renamed it in terms of God's presence. You know, words have great power to govern our lives. Words can shape the way we see things. Words can change us and make us new. And that's what the psalmist does. He gives us the language of trust. He shows us how we can talk about things. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He rescripted the uncertainty in terms of God's companionship. And he used these word pictures of a shepherd and host to say, look, this is my life. I'm naming it for what it is. And when David named his experience of trust in these metaphors, David, in in essence, is authoring life in us. Those who read it now some two plus thousand years later, 2,500 years later, we're reading something that is as relevant and pertinent today as it was when David wrote it. There's life, there's power, there's strength, there's something essential here. David's words give rise to hope in the face of fear. David's words lift the heart and strengthen resolve. David's words challenge the anxiety and the uncertainty that he was facing in the terms of God's companionship. David tells us this is what the language of trust sounds like. When you go through this uncertain time here between pastors... It's very important to watch your language, the words that you use. Of course, we have to be honest about the realities, but we also have to be faithful, and we have to communicate our challenges in terms that are consistent with trust and with faith. And that's what the Psalms do for us. We typically retreat to a place of familiarity when we undergo difficulty. We typically move back and say, yeah, we're going to get a pastor. Building's paid for. We have all the money that we need in the bank. Uh, We've got stable giving. 
um, a pastor would surely be attracted to us. That's an explanation that we tell ourselves. That's a narrative that we write in order to reassure ourselves that everything is going to be okay. And it may very well be that those are the facts of your situation, right? But having worked with people who want to pastor churches, I'm familiar with some of the things they're looking at. Remember, you're looking for a pastor. They're also looking for a flock. And sometimes pastors are looking for specific kinds of sheep. I don't care how much money you got. I want to know, are you willing to live Jesus Christ's life and mission? I don't care what your history is like. I want to know what your future can be like. I don't care what kind of reputation, legacy, or heritage you have in this area. I want to know about the future that will be written to show and demonstrate the power of God in this town. If you're looking for a pastor like that, he's not going to listen to the narratives that you send him. He's not going to hear the things and the explanations or the answers that you have. Those things are not necessarily going to appeal to him. Those things are not necessarily going to attract him. They're fine. They're good. Praise God. It shows his faithfulness. But the issue is not what's past. The issue is what's happening and what will happen in the future. And can you move with the shepherd ahead into that new future? Can you grasp the promise of God that's just around the bend? If you're looking for that kind of man, be prepared. Name your situation in the light of the people you are trying to become. Don't name your situation in terms of who you have been in the past. What has God called you to do? What does that look like? Name it. Move forward towards it. Don't rest on your laurels. Do not be content with past victories, with past successes. Write a new legacy. This is what young men are looking for. This is what they want to find. Are you willing? Are you game? Will you go with me into that bright future? Rename. Rename your situation. There are times in life when explanations that worked in the past just don't seem to work anymore for us. There are times in our lives that answers that would have pulled things off for us in the past are no longer effective. It doesn't fix the problem. It won't make the pain go away. But the Psalms know how to rename it. The Psalms know how to do things that reason can't do. The Psalms know this. And so I encourage you to read the Psalms during this interim period. Make them a part of your worship service. Read them aloud to yourself in your devotions. Read them aloud here during worship. Pray the Psalms together. Let their language of trust permeate your heart and your mind. They will enhance your capacities to talk, to talk faithfully about the future and what we can expect from God. Rename the challenges of your interim period in terms of trust. Finally, David rehearses his experience by sharing his story. I got a quarter after 12. I know it's late. You're not going to sleep on me, though. I can see that. I'm almost finished. But thank you for letting me speak from my heart. I hope it's an encouragement to you. David rehearses his experience. You know, God's people are story makers. You go through the scriptures. The majority of the Bible is a narrative. It gives an account. It's like a history. It's telling a story. God's people not only are story makers, they are storytellers. When I was a kid, I used to go to church on Sunday night and Wednesday night. Man, I put in 10,000 hours of church before I was 18 years old. But one thing I noticed that was so real and so apparent, and I don't see it so often anymore. One thing that 
made faith real to me as a kid was the testimonies that people in the church would give. And we called it testimony time. Okay? Hey, I'm turning the clock way back here, aren't I? Testimony time. How many of you remember testimony times? Huh? Yeah? Yeah? Those of us who are over 60, we're raising our hands. Testimony time. Why? Pastor would say, hey, testimony time, who's got a word to share? People would stand up and talk about situations in their life. Talk about verses that meant something to them. Talk about how God answered prayer. It started off kind of dark. You weren't sure where things were going. But by the time the testimony was over, you could see the light. That's what faith looks like. God was real. God acted. I had this problem. I talked to our God. Our God acted in this way. As a kid growing up, I saw trust in God. I saw what it looked like. Real life stories, story makers, storytellers. Recover that in this interim period. Talk about some stories. Some of you who have been here through thick and thin, you've experienced this before. Talk about your story of how God answered and brought a new shepherd to First Baptist. And be real. Don't code it. Be real. We had this challenge. We had that challenge. We prayed. We got together. I remember a prayer meeting when we got together and we called out to God. And in the next 30 days, God, talk about the way God acted. We need to hear these things. We need to, they give us reassurance. They give us hope. They strengthen us. They give us a sense of resolve. It's so easy to be overwhelmed by the unknown. It's so easy to feel insecure. It's so easy to allow the anxiety that wells up within us to capture our minds and to take us in places that aren't good and aren't healthy. And so we need to challenge that. We need to confront that by telling the stories of God's faithfulness to his people. And that's what David is doing here. He's presenting his reframed and renamed story. And he's giving it to Israel. And Israel gave it to us, the church. And we have this great resource and this benefit in our lives. David says, look, this is what it's like to travel with God through uncertain times. Tell your story. Think of someone this week you can share a story of God's faithfulness in your life. Share it. Share it. We're traveling, folks. The black preacher said all God's people got traveling shoes. But there's a difference between a tourist and a traveler. Let me me spell it out just briefly for us. You know, tourists like to see the sights. They're sightseers. But travelers seek to experience the place. For example, tourists go to the Grand Canyon And there they snap the pictures and then they post them to Facebook and they check it off their bucket list and then they move on to the next site, right? Travelers, however, see the canyon as something that is awaiting their discovery. They pull up, they get out, they walk over, they stop dead in their tracks, they stand in awe, they try to take everything in. That's a traveler. Tourists are stuck on info. They like to look at the brochures. Oh, nice picture. Hey, some guy here spit a mile over the edge. The travelers, however, want to step right up to that canyon's edge, and they experience the dizzying heights and the yawning gaps of those canyon walls. If you've been there and you stood on the edge, you look at it, it looks like it's moving, doesn't it? It's a strange feeling. And then the traveler bends over and spits. It's just not telling people what other people have done. It's experiencing it for yourself. You see, the tourist is one who has an idea passed down secondhand of what this experience is supposed to be like. And they just punch the ticket and move on to the next site. But a traveler is a person who has a first-hand experience of the Grand Canyon. 
And that firsthand experience is so moving, so real, that they talk about it. And in talking about it, their story becomes somebody else's secondhand experience. Are you a tourist or a traveler in this uncertain time of the interim period? Psalm 23 is for travelers. Tourists need not apply. Psalm 23 is for travelers. This is what it's like. And the psalmist is inviting you to reframe, rename, and rehearse your traveling experience in this interim period. Finally, in conclusion, the Lord is my shepherd. Say it with me. The Lord is my shepherd. Let's say it again. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is for you. The Lord is for you. The Lord is with you. The Lord is our shepherd. The Lord will meet every difficulty that you face in this time of uncertainty. The Lord is our shepherd. God is faithful. He is generous. He can be counted on to meet your every need because the Lord is our shepherd. He is more for you than you are for yourself. He is more for this church than the best member is. The Lord is our shepherd. Do you see yourself as being totally cared for by this caring shepherd? Do you see yourself as being totally safe in his hands? The Lord is our shepherd. He has your best interests at heart. He will guide you in order to fulfill his purpose for your life. This is our God. He is a God of promise. That's what it means when we say the Lord is our shepherd. You can. You can. You can meet the uncertainties of this interim period. Because... The Lord is your shepherd. Are you willing to let our God turn this current challenge into the most decisive moment of your church's history? The Lord is my shepherd. Stand with me. Let's pray together. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.